Welcome to God, Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. This is your host, Noor Kidwai. How you guys doing? Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is the hilarious comedian Kyle Lucy. Kyle's a Toronto comedian. Uh, he's been killing it out here. He started out here and he's amazing. Uh, just to give everybody a little bit of a warning on this episode, uh, Kyle goes deep into his life and uh, kind of tells us a lot about his childhood. And uh, there was a lot of like dark shit that happened to him and like some violence and stuff. So just to give everybody a warning, a heads up, uh, just in case if uh, that kind of stuff isn't something you need to hear. But uh, he does uh, really talk about like the transformation he's made in his life, which uh, is just like really great to hear. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. And, uh, yeah, please uh, keep subscribing to the podcast. Give it a good rating. All that stuff please, keeps helping. I really do appreciate it. And uh, check out uh, Newark Kid Y on the social media. I appreciate that as well. But let's get to this week's episode. My guest, Kyle Lucy. All right. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. Today I'm here with comedian Kyle Lucy. Kyle, thanks for joining me, bro. Thank you so much for having me. Dude, uh, this is going to be fun. Um, the reason I got you on, I fucking, I've always like known you as just like a great comedian in Toronto when I moved here. I, I always looked at you like as this like confident dude. And I, I always got that essence from you. Like, oh, this is just one of those guys who's always had that confidence. And then like, uh, yeah, you've been posting a lot during this pandemic. And it's just like you're opening up a lot about your life uh, before you got into stand up. And it seems like this confidence hasn't been something that's always with you. It seems like you were almost on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. And uh, yeah, you come from a very like dark place and like uh, actually opened up this confidence. So like, I don't know, you want to give me a little, our audience, a little bit of a background of kind of like your like childhood, how you came, like uh, what you, what you kind of came from. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. For the confidence, I feel like a lot of people mistake my extreme optimism or confidence because i don't feel like i feel confident now um but i have to do a lot to give myself that confidence it, it's not necessarily natural but um as far as like where i've come from like we uh my parents are both uh, irish my dad's an irish immigrant he's from cork my mother was born in canada and um they have like, it's like abuse is sort of generational. Like my dad, uh, his dad in Ireland was like, you know, oh, the TTC, which, you know, is our transit commission. And it's a really good job with benefits. Um, so this was like in the 70s. He's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, move over to Canada and I'm going to fly you guys out there once I save up enough money. And he's promising my dad, like, a huge jar full of coins for him and his brothers. And so my granddad goes to work at the TTC. And then my, when my dad and his two brothers and my grandma land there, he's a full-fledged alcoholic. So he's drinking a 2-4 and a 2-6 a day. Oh, wow. And he's very violent. So he would just punch my grandma in the face. 
if she made him shepherd's pie when he wanted a steak, like right when it's out of the oven, he'd smush her face into it and scald her. So at night, my father would hide her in the furnace. So my granddad never um, was violent to her. But that developed a codependency in my father, which is um, something from the over-parentification of a child. It's, it's when you feel that you need to fix people because he had to fix his mom. It was up to him. It was up to him, or so he thought. And so that manifested in his adult years. Codependency doesn't sound like it's a big deal, but it's when someone does everything for someone, like little tiny things. Like, let's say you and me live together, and I noticed you're a little messy, and I'm constantly cleaning up after you, but I'm never telling you that it's bugging me. Mm -hmm. Because I just, like, I want to do so much. I want to pour myself into you. And after several years, that creates resentment. And sometimes the resentment manifests in full-fledged violence. So that's what my father turned out to be. He would, um, I mean, at the worst of it, we got our home taken away, moved into another place, got that taken away, moved into a trailer, got that ta taken away, and then he lived in his van, and he got that taken away. They repossessed the van, which was his home. And he had his toes sticking out of his shoes. And he would always brag to us how, like, all the other guys at his work spend money on vacations. But look how much I do for you. And he he talked to us like that. And and that sort of – and then, like, you know, we don't – If I, I got kicked out of my house because I didn't put uh, my cell phone down on the table the right way, the way he wanted it. And um, – Obviously, he's misguiding his anger. He's doing so much for everybody, and he's not speaking up, so he became quite violent. My mom, on the other hand, growing up, was raped like more times than I have fingers. Um, she had a fire. A somewhat, her father, my grandfather, was a assistant superintendent to the, to the Toronto District School Board. So I guess someone flunked a, an exam and tried to murder uh, him, which would be my mother, their family home. So they set their house on fire. And um, my mom, they, they left my mom in the fire to die. So she was like calling for help. And my, my grandparents were like, you're on your own. And she had to jump like three stories and she broke her tailbone. Holy shit. That created scoliosis in her back. And then she had surgery, which six months off high school, and she came back to the rumor that she was pregnant. And so she dropped out of high school. So both people with a lot of abuse. And the Irish way to dealing with that is to drink till it all goes away and to push it down into the recess of your mind. So they did just that. They married and had four kids. And then things were great. Like the first like 14 years of my life were like, I couldn't ask for a better life. And then... My mom's mom died, and then she finally let it all go. Her brother Jared was raping her, and my dad, you know, all these things, until it started manifesting in violence. My mother would first start with spending. To when or when dark thoughts would come up, she we'd come home and there was like eight thousand dollars spent. She bought antique lamps, and then when we ran out of money and lost the home, she just started doing the cheaper option, which was drinking. And when she was drinking. Then all of her rage finally bubbled up. Mm. 
he would like punch me in the face and like my nose is spraying blood everywhere and i'd get in trouble for getting it on the wall that she freshly painted like things like this um it was weird it was like there was a time where my mom would like and i'm a boy you know so i'm not there was you know i remember being the age where i'm just stronger than my mom mm -hmm. and i'm not stronger than my dad and so I would, it was like two days a week, my father would hit me and three or four days a week, it was my mother. So there was not necessarily any relief. It was constant abuse, even, and if it wasn't me, my sister, like my dad would drag her by the hair and like you hear him take her to a room and the door would shut and she screams. Mm. Or my would put my mom's hand in the door frame and slam it and broke her entire hand or my sister walks in and my father straddling my mother on the bed strangling her but my mom has been raped so many times she doesn't even know which way's up mm -hmm. so she just she just goes ah well this guy beats me up but he buys me smokes literally how schizophrenia runs in my family so my mother starts to see demons about eight years ago watching her sleep and so I don't know if she's schizophrenic or if that was her detoxing from the copious amount of alcohol she used to drink. But either way, she's not all there. And so she's dying now. This is so sad. But I'm she's, sad. sorry her, to hear this, man. <laughs> no, it's fine. I, I, don't, I see it more like my high school bully's dying. Like oh, it's not – I more so never really had a mom and dad. I did a lot of – I raised myself. I see it. Did uh, so? Did like your relationship pretty much deteriorate with your parents? Like, uh, never really came back, or what? Yeah, I mean, it's just who they are. They're both narcissists, and I mean that in the true. I'm not saying that like how you would say that. I don't know to someone as a diss. They're truly like psychologically a, a narcissist. Like a perfect example is when I got kicked out. My mother hasn't. It's been six years, six or seven years since they kicked me out, and literally, like my dad. It was like a cult. We, were, we weren't allowed to listen to music. My dad would tell us it goes him, then God, then um, mother. So he was above God. In his, <laughs> wow. He, we, he, like, or else. Because when we all, we all got jobs to get the fuck out of there, save money and get the fuck out of there. Um, but what happened was he said... We all need to be on joint bank accounts or else get your own fucking house. And you're 16. You don't really want to move out making Tim Hortons money. So essentially, he was just taking all of our paycheck. Yeah. And he was putting bills in our name, which I learned later was fraud. Like, I still have creditors after me. Um, Shit. But it was like, essentially he had everybody by the balls financially he stole sixty thousand dollars off his dad and about eighty thousand dollars off my mom's dad he was pretty much a con man and so if we said anything to him if we even made a a, a boop we're outside that night and any money we've saved to get out of the house is wired out of our accounts yeah. so like 19 he kicked me out finally because you know me and him physically fought, and I won this time. Oh, wow. And he's 6'3 and 220, but I've always been interested in working out in MMA. So I, I grappled him to the ground, and I threw him through the closet, and I 
I embarrassed them. And my shit was all outside the next day. $1,200 was wired out of my account. And I had a, two garbage bags full of all my shit at 19. And so I couch surf until I started making money in comedy. So you couch surfed uh, that 19 until you started making money in comedy. That's how you. I lived with my, I lived like, I, yeah, pretty much. Like I started like, but I mean, I was doing improv at the time too, which paid. I didn't start making stand-up money till like four or five years after that. Mm-hmm. But I would go on like the road and do like a harborfront cruise ship for like $300 or like dinner theater, interactive dinner theater. It's like long form improv. And at that time I was like taking all the money I could get. And I used to host the amateur night at Yuck Yucks Ajax. I used to just do some small stuff. And my rent was like dirt cheap because I finally found like my aunt to give me a place. But she was, she's like schizophrenic. Like you wake up and she's watching you sleeping and you go downstairs and all the mirrors are punched in. Like, oh, damn. But um, still, rent was $200. So it was it was easy to sort of survive there for a bit until the Corner Comedy Club opened up and I got an acting agent. I booked a commercial or sorry, I booked a TV show that was like five grand. And then there was a place that I could do stand up seven days a week, Mm -hmm. three spots a night. So literally my whole dream, I could have a start. The, The TV show gave me the money to start rent and the stand-up gave me the place to work the craft and that was when i was i think 20 and then i've been doing it ever since damn man so uh i guess like stand-up had to be like such an outlet for you right like i like a therapist that it's absorbed a lot of pain yeah i wouldn't doubt it um yeah so like uh I, i remember you said like uh after like all of this like kind of like shit that you went through like i wouldn't doubt like how how hard it would be to like now like kind of go into the regular world and like try to like make choices and like i remember in some of your posts you were talking about it's just like you put yourself in toxic places you put yourself in toxic relationships and shit like that and you treated yourself very badly and i wouldn't doubt it like no one can really blame you from where you came from so like how did it go from you making all these kind of decisions to like turning that around and actually start making like better decisions for yourself? About six years ago, I tried to kill myself and that sort of was the, the wake up call. Um, like a lot of the, a lot of this comes from like my mother used to just sit on my bed while I was sleeping and blow smoke in my face. Like you're a fucking loser guy. And that's what I would go to bed to. Mm-hmm. My dad would call me a faggot if I cried, if he beat me. And it was just, I, I thought I was a worm. I truly did. I truly thought that like, because, and I learned in therapy that the connection children have with their parents, the parents are your first love objects. So psychologically, it's easier for you to think I'm bad than to think the person who's responsible for my well-being is a tyrant. So a lot of children with abusive parents end up internalizing the pain and thinking that it's all them. I would also attribute that to a lot of gaslighting my parents did. I loved it when they cut me open and there was a scar because it was a receipt. Because anytime they did it and the bruise would heal in a couple of days, they would say, we never touched you, Kyle. And I ended up believing them after a while. I didn't know which way was up. Yeah. But I have like 
like a pink bubbly scar running down my leg from when my dad and I had a fight and my leg smashed into this glass table and I needed stitches. There's several times I need about three or four times I needed stitches, but couldn't because if we went in, they said the hospital, how do you get a cut? My dad would say, well, if you answered honestly, Kyle, then they'll take children's aid will come in and separate and all of us and you'll never see your brothers and sisters again. So it was my fault that he did it. Yeah. So a lot of that made me feel I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, to the point where this fabricated guilt built up so much I tried to kill myself. And I, I just told myself, let me go to therapy. And if it's, if it's a load of shit, I'll kill myself. But let me just try this one thing first. And the first session in therapy, Marco, my therapist, said I wasn't bad, and I broke down right there. I never heard it before. I always heard ingrate. I always heard loser. And I never pictured myself to even be remotely good. Mm -hmm. And I learned the concept of lotus flower, which is I want to name my stand-up special this lotus flower grows in mud because it's a beautiful pink vibrant flower that grows in swamplands. And so I had to really absorb the principle that I'm both the mud and the flower and that I could hold both of them in one and be complete and to not just be the flower and to ignore the mud and not, I'm not just the mud either. Ignore the flowers that I'm both. Wow, man. Yeah. That's, that's very beautiful. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, taking that, uh, it's like a yin and yang kind of thing. Like, you know, like both the good and bad, it's like, it's there and you have to kind of, I maybe I don't know if they taught you that in therapy, but like kind of like knowing your shadow self as well. But like it seems like you are almost completely identified with your shadow self, like all that guilt, all that resentment and all that uh, all of that was there. And you couldn't really find your like confidence or like any of that self-love. Right. Yeah, definitely. Like even now, I'm still working on that. Like um, as far as the shadow self goes, I had to tell myself and repeat it to myself that I'm more than just my pain. And even like, I, I blacked out a lot of shit. Like my mom would, I didn't remember this till like two years ago, three years ago, I was so drunk and high. And I remember my mom at night, she did this two times. The first time she knocked on my door at night and said, I need you to spend the night with me because I almost used the bathroom curtain to create a noose and hang myself. So I need you to be here so I don't do it. So I'd be like, okay. And then I'd be sitting beside her and she's hammered. So she starts like grabbing my cock and trying to make out with me. Mm. And here's a conundrum when you're like 15. It's if I don't let her molest me, my mom dies. Yeah. And it's my, my fault. So I just let it. And when she started trying to kiss me on the lips, I pushed her off and I, I, I made a decision that's when she died to me. Yeah. It's you could kill yourself tonight. And I, I hope you do. And ever since then, I just couldn't ever. She's truly evil. Truly. It's a cessatist. Mm. And, um, you know, it is what it is. And then she tried to do it again. She said, cause she, there was one point where she got so violent that my father called the cops on her and they took her to jail and she, she did go to jail. 
we couldn't take it anymore. And then we all felt bad. She only served a couple of weeks. And then we all, because we were the ones that pressed the charges, we dropped the charges. We thought she learned her lesson. And then we said no booze. And then like a week later, maybe three days later, she bought this huge thing of box wine and just chugged it. And her fate, I had that joke saying that um, she drinks so much wine, her, her, there's red on her face. And she's like, it's simple. We kill the Batman. <laughs> and um, literally she went missing for like three or four. Uh, no, it was like a, it was a matter of weeks because we took her booze away and literally we're printing off pictures of missing, like uh, the police got involved and we were looking in fields and, Anytime the news came up, like blonde woman dead, we, were, we thought it was her. And yeah, then she went missing. And then we had like these print offs, like literally a, a official police print off of a missing person. And I remember going into a Wendy's asking the cashiers if they've seen my mom. And the ladies there were around my age. And it, that's when it really felt like, holy shit, I don't live like other people live. Um, because they, all these girls started crying and feeling bad for me. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's fucking Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. Like and my parents would always say like, in fact, that I was lucky that this, like that I had people like them. I didn't know. Nope, I didn't know that other people weren't living this way. And that like, that's just, I'm barely scratching the surface of the violence. This mm -hmm. touched the poverty. We didn't, I would go home and you'd click the light and it wouldn't turn on. And the hot water was in all of our houses were electric. So no hot water. The longest I went without hot water was in, I think, grade 10. And it was six months without a shower. Holy so we, God. yeah, we would go to Tim Hortons and wash our hands in the sink and just clean ourselves with our hands. Like my high school didn't have showers so it was sort of like that. I remember I, I thought it was going to cry the first hot shower I had, but I didn't. It was six months and I kept telling myself, this is a treat. I kept saying, this is a treat. Mm. And it, you know, when you deprive basic needs, it is. It is a treat. Yeah. Wow. We were selling furniture for groceries. I remember we sold like a lot of the furniture my grandma gave us just to buy a month's worth of subs because you could keep it in the fridge oh, and subs every day. So I ended up hating subs, but you know, they had, they have your veggies, they have your meat, they have your grain. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah I guess so. so, uh, let's talk about like when you came into therapy and like you started turning your life around, like what stuff did you like learn in therapy that like actually became like beneficial stuff that you kept with, like kept going with? Well, at first it was like, I had so much rage. And at first I realized that my rage was turned inward, that I was actually mad at my parents and also just the situation of poverty of being embarrassed. I went to a, pretty rich school and you know it sucked everything sucked and I was very angry I also didn't come to grips that I hated my mother for doing what she did to me so I misguided my anger to women in general like my mom's fine she just fucked up she's had a rough childhood that's how I would rationalize it but anytime I I remember this was five years ago this this was an immediate thing I healed but anytime I saw a drunk blonde woman I could feel my fist ball, like 
go like this. Because exactly how my mom was when she would molest me. Damn. You know what I'm saying? But I, your subconscious does. I actually thought I was a pedophile, but I wasn't. But my parents made me think that I was so evil. I remember serving, I used to serve tables. A child came up to me, like the, the mom was like, rip the receipt off the debit. And then the child came up to me and I just felt its innocence. And I felt like, you know, 15 years of hate and the contrast of innocence and hate. Immediately, I was like, oh, my God. Like, I just thought to myself, I'm bad for children. Mm. Right. But in that immediate notion, you say to yourself, why am I? You start thinking, why am I bad for children? What, what's deep down in me? And the gaslighting I was raised with, I didn't know anything. I just went, oh, my God, deep down, I'm probably a pedophile. So that made me hate. That's that's what made me want to kill myself, too. And then my therapist just goes, are you attracted to kids? I go, no, I actually like older women. Like, and that makes sense from my mother because you sexualize trauma or you laugh at it. So your body makes it feel good instead of bad. So I like I like milfs. (laughs) So he goes. Oh, so you're a pedophile that's not attracted to kids. <laughs> and I, exactly. Wait, something deeper is here. And so that was that was a breakthrough. Um, a lot of therapy, too, is like, you know, I had so much rage every week for like the first three or four years was me going like of the gas. Like, what do you mean by that? Like, imagine like so much pressure, it's going to burst every week. It's not even me learning anything. It's just me getting it out. Yeah, just slowly getting it out in like a healthy way, you mean? Exactly. That was like the first three years. Then I realized that I developed also like my father a codependency. And that was sobering because codependency is um, my father would come home violent and I would always make him laugh. That's also how I sort of became funny. It was my duty to make him laugh so he wasn't violent. Also... You know, bills were being put in my name at like 15 and my job. I was also I was the second income of the family, not my mother. She was a drunk slob on the couch. I used to call her the cushion. And so my father at like a very young age made me support the family. Like I was paying bills. I was doing this. So you think when you're a child and you're not developed that your role in life is to to just give yourself all of your essence, never mind about you, is to give the shirt off your back to everyone. And what that does, and that's how the post that you messaged me about, the one I recently did, there's a book in Gulag Archipelago called, and there's a quote that goes, a sheep is quite a find for a wolf. So codependents attract narcissists in dynamics. So my parents are both narcissists. There's women that and men, but because I'm, you know, I would date a woman. Women in my life who were narcissists saw a person like me, a need to please, a servant or a slave otherwise. And it would attract these terrible people. There's this one girl who was telling me she loved me so much. And meanwhile, she was fucking all my friends. And every relationship I had was exactly that. So you're saying fucking my friends. Yeah. So you're saying like because of your codependency, like that is pretty much what like kind of attracted all these kind of narcissists. They saw you as 
kind of like a sheep or somebody who needed to please, right? Yeah, a codependent also like loves to be needed. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily, and and a narcissist loves to be adored. Okay, that's how it becomes a dynamic. It's oh, could I please make you dinner tonight? Yes, I suppose so. <laughs> and it just creates this vicious, vicious cycle. And the thing is, with the narcissist, the benefit for the codependent is that the codependent gets to pour themselves into somebody and finally, finally be enough. But the thing is, with the narcissist, is as it, it's called a narcissistic supply. And as their narcissistic supply continues, their ego grows. And as their ego grows, their hunger, it's dif- it becomes increasingly difficult to satiate their hunger. So they constantly need more. So what started off as me constantly complimenting them ended up with they fucking all my friends completely dominating me. I'd, I'd need to cut my head off and give it on a plate for it to be enough. And then even then, it would only be enough for a couple of moments and then they'd get, then they'd need more with the heightened ego. So, you know, I that was in relationships. In business, I remember, I'm not going to say the club's name, but constantly, I was headlining other clubs and they were, ha- and if you know the club's name, don't even mention it, because you do know the club. But they would have me like, I was headlining clubs and I was barking, bringing people in. And then I remember barking one time, and the owner's like, go outside and earn your fucking spot. He told me that. And then here's where I should have spoke up like 30 steps ago. Now I'm here because I kept saying, I'm here. I'm going to like, I'm a headliner at this point. And I'm like, I'm as hungry as an open micer. That's a lot. So then people just take advantage. And another thing in therapy that I learned is you teach people how to treat you. So now I have no problem being hurt. Or setting boundaries and I've, I've made it a this year I've made it a mission to make myself both enlightened and formidable formidable so no one breaks into my house or at least crosses my boundaries and enlightened so with my new skills I'm not a tyrant oh I love that man ah dude that's a that's like a like beautiful way to like actually describe like self uh like just that whole dependency issue like the codependency I, I, I like that's uh like an amazing way to like put it it seems like you've done like so much work to actually like become self-aware of all that uh shit right i couldn't uh yeah. i couldn't imagine and like uh drawing boundaries like how you said that like how important that shit is for people and especially in our business too like how you said in comedy how many people want to take advantage of you or like in a lot of different like businesses like that you find people who do and like it is that way of uh, you like slowly saying those yeses and all those yeses keep adding up until you kind of find yourself in a place where you're like, how the fuck did I get here? And now you're like almost at that point, you don't know how to speak up for yourself and defend yourself. Um, I've definitely had that problem. Definitely not to the capacity, like the place that you've had it at. Uh, like, uh, yeah, you seem, especially in like your relationships and stuff, it seems like that was rough. Um, so how did you work? on um getting rid of this codependency is it basically like drawing the boundaries is that the most important part so i don't see it this way but in podcasts i listen to and in therapy people who are codependent literally call themselves recovering codependent 
They treat it like it, they're alcoholics. Apparently, it's for life. Okay. Yeah, like it's it's. I don't think it's gonna go away, but I can certainly manage it. Much like you're allergic to peanuts, you can still live a good life, and you, there, you just you make sure you are you adjust your diet. Let's say. Yeah. So I that's exactly what I do. So, like my morning routine is five hours. And it might be a, a lot for other people, but I need more glue to piece myself together than most people. I've been through more than most people, at least in the first world. So can you uh, maybe let our audience know a little bit about your uh, morning routine? So I'll wake up at 6.30 a.m. and I'll immediately I meditate because that's how I become my most efficient self. There's no dilly-dallying after you meditate. Because it it foregoes thought and it injects you into the present moment. So afterwards, I'm I'm my most efficient self. Then I read. I'll read. I usually like to juggle three books at once, and I'll read like ten to fifteen pages of each book. So it's like thirty to forty five pages. Right now, I'm reading. I usually like a, a self help book, and then two ones just for learning. Okay. So. It's science, Russian literature. Right now, it's Russian literature. And um, after that, it's around 11. So then I go to the gym. My, my house is converted into a gym. My my upstairs roommate is a pay-per-view Muay Thai fighter. And so he's invested like thousands of dollars into making um, a home gym. And oh, we yeah. have... Lucky. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, I, I pay him, but... I'm just one of his clients. He has like 15 clients and they're all comedians for the most part. And so I work out and it, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays after my exercise, I train Muay Thai and all that's being done on a 16 hour fast. So I don't eat until three. I have, I have an eight hour window to eat and that's for its own reasons because um, you know, when you're not, when you're constantly eating and you have and you're working out, the blood isn't going to your muscles, it's digesting your food. So I, I always work out fasted. Another reason is when you're not eating, your your cells have time to repair your body instead of digesting your food. It's an enzyme issue too. So that's why I'm eight hours they say is good for endurance and strength. And I feel stronger than I ever have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, damn, dude. So, like, yeah, that's a fucking insane morning routine. Uh, good for you. Like, I, I can see how you're saying, though, like, I, you say, like, uh, it takes a little bit more to put yourself together, like, with what you've been through kind of thing. So, like, this routine is something, especially with meditation, that's, like, such a beautiful way to start your day. Um, really get yourself out of your head. Um, ha have you noticed, like, uh, especially because how you said, like, how you used to treat yourself and, like, how you used to talk to yourself, like, have you noticed, like, a difference in, like, the self-talk that you have inside your head from meditation? Because I know, like, I've been meditating for years as well, and that's kind of been, like, one big thing that I've changed is, like, finding that self-talk that I tell myself, like, shit that I tell myself in my head, and, like, a lot of times it tells you, you tell yourself, like, you're worthless, or, like, you're not good at what you do, or you're never, like, what you're doing isn't gonna work, like, those kind of thoughts, they can come up, but, like, meditation really does help me like look at that and separate myself from those thoughts and be like hey this isn't me 
and that's where I can kind of let those thoughts go and like allow like self love and like compassion to kind of rise up. Um, so have you noticed like a difference like in your self talk with the uh, meditation? Absolutely. Like, um, yeah, because I had the opposite. I I was self loathing. A lot of it was because of the guilt, like how I explained earlier. Um, so I would look in the, my reflection in the mirror and I would point to myself and say, I hate you. And I used to start it like that. I remember living, I got this apartment in Pickering, this basement apartment. I saved up like $15,000 working at this restaurant. And I lived, I got this place in Pickering and, um, yeah, it was like a thousand dollars a month, which at the time I was like, I think I was like just turning, I was 19, I was 19. So to me at 19, a thousand dollars a month was a lot. Yeah. I just, you know, I had $15,000 and I lived there for like six, seven months. And the whole time I had zero furniture. It took me like six months to get furniture because, um, I could have bought it. I literally just didn't, I had a bed and that's it because I didn't think I was worth furniture. I didn't think it was like, just treat me like a dog. I'll sleep on the floor. I would order pizza and just eat the pepperoni. Even though I was hungry, I wasn't worth food. Of course I wasn't worth food. And, um, I remember not leaving my house for seven days, not talking to someone for seven days. And I ran into a comedian. I don't, I don't know if he'd be comfortable with me saying his name. So his name's Pat, but I won't say his last name. But I literally was like, you're the first person I've talked to in seven days. And I was starting to go a little crazy. And then he's, he's like, well, well, you should talk to more people. <laughs> I was like a completely comedian response. Well, you should probably talk to a few more people. <laughs> and um, yeah, shortly after that was the suicide uh, episode and then the therapy and so the meditation so that's where it was like and then now I don't necessarily I'm still working on self-love because I was raised I'll say the word like if you said self-love in my household my dad would be like you're a fucking faggot yeah like what you, self what are you fuck it you know what I'm saying like that bullshit way of thinking mm -hmm. so that's a lot in me like, I don't call it, but it's, it is self, like, it, you need self-love. And I had my friend of mine explain to me how you value yourself, how that affects your trajectory. And it made sense. Like, if you get two people, this person hates himself, this person thinks they're the best, you're both presented with a job opportunity, this person goes, well, hell yeah, I could do it. This person goes, well, I'm, I'm shit. So that's exactly what's going to happen. And I was so poor growing up that I'm never going to be that way again, ever, uh, like ever. Even with my self-hatred, I'm never going to be there again. So anytime something affects my career, I drop everything and I fix whatever the fuck was wrong. I don't give a shit. I don't care if I got a hand off. I'm never being poor again, bro, ever. So I just do what it takes yeah hey man i can understand that and i can see how that's like translated into your work ethic you like i've always like even told people when i'm back home in calgary like if they tell you who do you know in Cal toronto like who who's coming up i always say like you're probably one of the wor uh, hardest workers in the city like uh you all i will see you out and i will see you bouncing around and just doing your shit and uh 
I do want to talk about uh, that after. Uh, but uh, yeah, just to like kind of like talk about that self-love thing again. Um, one thing I did notice about that is like um, kind of understanding where you're uh, kind of, yeah, understanding like where your like mental thoughts are. Like, because I did like, I, one thing I noticed with it, like I did have like a lot of guilt as well. And uh, like a lot of like kind of like shitting on myself. And uh, when I started getting into meditation, it was all like, okay, those thoughts started coming up and it was like, okay, now like try to disidentify with those thoughts and just say like, oh, those aren't me. And then like sometimes it would go away, but then they would come back and then all of a sudden you, they come back and all of a sudden you feel guilty about that. You're like, oh, fuck, they're back. Like they're never going to leave me. And then that guilt like pushes you down again. So like it was like a complete like having to like try to let go of that shit and just like really say they're not me. And just like when they do show up, like you have to kind of show a love and just be like, hey, like I get it. Like this, this, like these shitty thoughts are there. They're coming back. And I just have to kind of show them love and acceptance and just be like, okay, they're there. And like, that was actually like, it worked like that actually kind of like took away so much power from those thoughts. And like, that's when I started like really going on like an upward uh, trajectory, like just with my life and just with my mental health. Right. Um, Yeah. You kind of felt a little bit similar. Yeah. Like, um, like I just would remember watching like a, why uh, a youtube video like why meditation is important and it's exactly what you just said i had it explained to me like if you were on the sidewalk watching traffic go by not traffic cars like fast you are uh, like those are your thoughts zip, 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 zip. it's just it is what it is it just is that you know you're not like if you take a thought like uh i'm a bad person you're not like the tendency for like someone who hates himself is to just grab that car and just ride it all the way. It's like, what about the thought that you're, you're, I I think I'm Spider-Man sometimes. Like I literally dream that I'm Spider-Man. Like I don't, I certainly don't take that thought all the way home. (laughs) It's like, it's not, they're just your thoughts. So meditation for me too is a way where I could get off the road and go on the sidewalk and just watch them go by and not judge them go by, but know that they go, you know, and acknowledge them. I'll acknowledge it. But I don't, I truly don't think I'm a bad person because I think I would have done something bad by now. And I haven't. I've done, I've done a lot of good, actually. Yeah. Hey, man, fucking, I'll never say that you're a bad person. I've known you and I, uh, you've always been like helpful to people and nice and encouraging. And uh, yeah, I, I'll never say that. Uh, all right, buddy, this is the fucking name of the podcast. So I got to ask you the big question. So Kyle Lucy, God, yay or nay? I think like, I think yes. Um, I don't know if you could see. Oh, you got a little cross there. But I don't know if it's truly the way we think of it. I don't think, you know, when I just see how corrupt the church is right now with, you know, I think all of the world's elite are sex trafficking pedophiles. And you could see with Epstein how it implies or implicates rather the U.S. government with Trump and with Clinton, the royal family with Prince Andrew. Hollywood, all of Hollywood with the Me Too movement, and the Catholic Church has been known for a while, 
And now I'm seeing that it's not just children, that bishops are running sex rings with nuns. Oh, shit. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven, is what the Bible says. But in the Vatican, there's rooms made entirely of gold, and bishops sit on gold thrones. There's obvious corruption in the Catholic Church. It's obvious. I see so many... Um, in history, so many times the Bible was modified to fit the king at the time, that, how they wanted to live their life. And things were discarded at will and, and absorbed at will that I don't, I think what's known as Catholicism and Christianity now is a very diluted version of what it is. But I'm doing a lot of research on religion right now, and it's undeniable that, that at, at the very least, it's shaped Judeo-Christian values have shaped our laws, which, you know, thou shall not kill, thou shall not steal. All these things have like influenced our laws. So we practice it every day. I really believe that like through your eat, like let's say your bad choices, you'll literally move towards hell on earth. Like if you lie, you're deceitful, you're stealing. You're, you have murderous intent. I've been there. It's hell. But when I'm faithful, when I tell the truth, when I honor myself and my friends, I feel amazing right now and it's heaven. So I think a lot of what the Bible teaches gives so much insight on how to live a good life that I think, especially the fact that it was written 2,000 years ago, who knows? It could be God of some other dimension. I also believe that we are made in God's image. And I wrote this the other day, but it was sort of about something in a book I wrote because human beings could make form from formlessness. Mm -hmm. If you think, like, let's say I want to be a stand-up comedian. It's a thought. I want to make, like, yeah, maybe that's, how about I want more money? This is simple. I want more money. You might say to yourself, I want more money. And then you speak it into existence. And then when it's there, you say, well, you know, I'm, I, I'll get a job. And then you get a job. And then you get, so then the action yields results. And that result yields money. So you thought of it. And now you're, so indirectly, your thoughts are tangible. Mm -hmm. You're making form from formlessness. I think that's very powerful of how we're made in God's image, how we, how we as humans, are, we can create tons of things. So there's a lot, there's a lot there. There's, there's so much there where I think it's more than coincidence. But I'm a bit like people hate Jordan Peterson, but I really like him. And his answer to that question is I act as if God exists. And that's probably my answer too. just I'm so doubtful because of the corruption but you have to be a fool to ignore the significance. Yeah. Hey, man. Uh, even just doing this podcast and, like, now doing over, like, 20 shows. Like, uh, yeah, trust me. I fucking, um, I've seen a lot of people who don't ignore the corruption. And, like, they actually, I think a lot of people see the corruption. And uh, most people are kind of uh, moving away from organized religion. But uh, there are, like, I've, like, I'm interviewed a few atheists but i've interviewed a lot more people now that i think uh are trying to find some sort of like spirituality outside of religion or, or for themselves just because uh it does help them 
Um, all right, man. Well, we're pretty much like close to the end here. Before we uh, go, uh, I just wanted like uh, I know like you're a great comedian. You like you're into a lot of like dark comedy, and uh, this is uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about. Like, so I don't know. I, I I've seen like there's a lot of people now like uh, with comedy. They're like a little bit. Um, I don't know. Maybe they want to censor it. They don't like dark comedy. They uh, you know a lot of there's like a movement that's kind of against that. So I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on like. Like, why do you do dark comedy? How does that, like, help you? Like, how does that help you, um, like, almost even deal with, like, the pain and trauma that you've been through in your life? And uh, what do you kind of, like, how do you deal with, like, uh, people, like, audiences that might not like it or even, like, other comedians that might not like it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, the thing is, it's my truth. And I spent the first, like, I started comedy at 16. So I'm almost 10 years in. I am 10 years in. This is my, but I'm not 10 years in. Because from 16 to 20, I would take like three months off. I would constantly deny who I was. The fact that like a lot of my morbid sense of humor, like my mother, for instance, when she was very violent and drunk, she'd breathe like this. So you'd wake up and you'd hear that and then you'd just get punched in the face. The next day at the breakfast table, we're all eating and she drags her hungover ass and sits down with us. And then at the table, I start going <laughs> and then everyone starts laughing. And I know that's how my humor was shaped. I know that's how my humor was shaped. I was able to take a painful moment and transcend it. And so I knew that what that gave me and what that gave my siblings and what that even gave my mom, it sort of alleviated tension. So I made it my mission to find points of tension and alleviate it. And I think I'm the one, like, I guess you'd say edgy dark comedian that I have been met with zero pushback. I produced a sold out show at Comedy Bar. Yeah. Zero pushback, zero pushback. And a lot of that is because I'm honest with why I do it. Because like, if anyone tells me not to do it, they're victim blaming. Hey, that's a good way to put it. What? A trans person can say their plight, but I can't? Mm -hmm. It sense. It just doesn't make sense. So people are allowed to speak their pain. Yeah. So I do. So I do. If anybody doesn't like me, they're, they don't like the fact that a straight white male who's good looking and muscular could have a more downtrodden life than them. They don't like. And that's that's something that's on them. And believe it or not, when you when you group everybody like when you group people in, too many things fall between the cracks. Yeah. And we know this. Not all black people shoot, not all Asians are bad at driving, and not all white people live on yachts. Yeah. Not all Jews are smart. Well, all Jews are smart. Let's <laughs> but <laughs> no, I mean, it's just like that you'd have to deny me my reality to not like my comedy. And another thing too is like, I put the onus on myself. It's not enough to just like, if you have a, if I have a rape joke, first of all, it's usually about how rape has influenced my life, like with my mother and her trying to do it to me. That's you, I usually, it's my experience. But even if I do that, the punchline for a rape joke, like that, like a really tension heavy joke is like, like in X-Men, adamantium or vibranium in the Avengers. It's the hardest steel in the world. 
You can't cut it with a butter knife. You can't just use a pun to break the tension of a rape joke. You need like a sword made of lava forged on a dying stuff. The punchline for a very tension heavy joke needs to be the funniest like thing ever. Why I get away with it is because I put the onus on myself to make the joke in like, like insanely funny. I rewrite it 30 times. So it justifies the premise. The punchline justifies the premise because it's, and I have anytime I bombed, it's usually with new material. And that bomb makes me go, that punchline's not funny enough to warrant my premise. I rewrite the punchline to make it funny. Er. Hell yeah, buddy. Hey, that's the fucking game right there. Like, uh, rewrite it to make it funny. And you're right. Like, um, when you're dealing with tougher topics, that's like you need to have a stronger punchline to break that tension. So I love that. And like, that's actually why I've always respected you because. There is this like more movement too, and like trying to be edgy. Like so, there's a lot of comics trying to be edgy, but it's almost just just to try to be edgy, and then their jokes just are like they're just annoying jokes, which are almost meant to troll or almost meant to just be shock humor. And like I hate that kind of humor. That like that that kind of shit like annoys the hell out of me. But like like you said, like you're trying to actually like talk about the truth that you experienced in your life. And that's what art is like. So fucking nothing but respect. I everybody. It more as like expression. That's all I'm doing is artistic expression. I find that when people like edge lords are met with haste, it's either because they're posers, like they lived a great life and they're trying to be like some sort of bad dog, and it's just so obvious. It's like this fucking doesn't fit you, bro, and that's how they come off as offensive. Yeah. Or. It's someone with a terrible life, but they are too afraid to include themselves in on the joke. And they just like I have like like if I do a set, I'm I'm in I'm probably one of the most other like Don Pere is a very technical comedian. I'm a very technical comedian. I make sure that in a set, I never focus too much on one. T- like if I have a joke about women, I have a joke about black people then a joke about people with Down syndrome, then a joke about me trying to kill myself. So I'm equally as savage across all dimensions. If I have two jokes about killing themselves, two jokes about women, now it's not a joke I have an agenda. You can never, you don't double up on on topics unless you're doing like an hour. All these things, Matt, like I'm extremely technical where I make sure I don't put myself in those mistakes. I constantly change the target. So I make sure that there's no agenda. This guy is just, ruthless 100 or, or 360 degree ruthless you come to see me you're watching marilyn manson there's art in marilyn manson but that's what you're watching <laughs> hey fuck buddy i love that uh thanks so much man i appreciate you coming on uh please uh let my audience know uh where they can get a hold of you if you got any shit you want to uh promote feel free to do it now man yeah bro uh i'm on instagram at kyle juicy k-y-l-e j-u-i-c-y um i got a bunch of show i'm booked every weekend now there's still a lot of stuff that's not open but what i would like people to come to is uh, i have a show at comedy bar called naughty and nice where we get like half the like i host it with ryan dylan so he books comics that are clean i book comics that are fucking crazy x-rated and we put them all in one show to sort of tell people funny's funny. 
and the show's a success. We sold out last show. We sold out, I think, we've had great audience, but now we're consistently sold out. And the next show is September 4th at Comedy Bar in the main space. Awesome, buddy. Uh, yeah, please check that out, everybody. And uh, thanks for coming on, my man. Thank you so much for having me, man. This was great. All right, that was this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I appreciate it. Please subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. It really does help. And also check me out on social media. On Instagram and Twitter, it's at NewerKidY. On Facebook, it's NewerKidY Comedian. I'm constantly putting updates about the podcast. When new ones come out, I put up podcast clips. And uh, yeah, I also put up comedy stuff, comedy dates, comedy clips and different stuff like that so uh, you can come check out have a laugh and get keep up to date on the podcast until next time this is another episode of god yay or nay